Let's read Psalm 117 and pray. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all people. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Father, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, that we would clearly hear from you. God, that as we read from your word and as we hear your promises, that you would grow us in our love for you. God, that we would have deeper affections towards you. God, that it would be, um, it would be changing. That as we look upon you who is unchanging, we ourselves would be changed. And as we change, we would be changes in the communities and in our homes and wherever it is we are. Father, I pray that um, you would help us just to be faithful to your word this morning. We love you. You are good. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 117 is the shortest psalm in the whole book of Psalms, and it is also the shortest book in the whole Bible. Uh, when I was praying about which psalm to preach on July 16th, I kept dismissing it. I came to Psalm 117, and I saw that it was so short, and I just said, nope. And despite my best intentions, this psalm has just wedged itself into my brain. You can ask anyone who has been around me for the last two weeks. I cannot stop talking about Psalm 117. Because this psalm may be short, but the depth of this psalm, the truth, the wisdom, and the comfort cannot be understated. Part of the beauty of shorter chapters and shorter verses of Scripture is that they they're kind of these compressed versions of larger truths that we can hang on to when we need, um, when we need to commit truths to our minds. You know, Paul in Philippians 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It is useful to have these shorter chapters and verses committed to memory so that we can dwell on that which is noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. On first read of this psalm, it is not very difficult to parse out what is being said. There is something that is happening, and actually if I can get uh, Psalm 117 back up on the slide, that would be awesome. Thank you. It is not difficult to see what is happening, right? There is uh, something that is happening. What? Praise God the Lord. Who is praising the Lord? All nations. What are all nations doing? Extolling him, which is just a fancy way, again, saying it's, it's emphasizing praising the Lord. Who, again, is praising the Lord? All people. Why are they praising the Lord? Why are they extolling him? All these nations and all these people for great for, uh, for his great steadfast love towards us. Not only his great and steadfast love towards us, but also his faithfulness, which endures forever. Close it out with another praise the Lord, and we're done. All right, sermon preach. Where's my worship team? <laughs> Just, all right. Martin Luther, the uh, famous Protestant reformer, dedicated 36 pages of exposition to this psalm. 
I do not have 36 pages of exposition to read to you this morning, praise the Lord, um, but, but I think I can understand how Luther would have dedicated so much time to this psalm because it's short and to the point, um, and my hope this morning is that I, I would help bring you along in this journey. So I have five things. I have five things for you this morning that I believe Psalm 117 is. And I believe if you can follow me through these five things, Psalm 117 can be a psalm that you write on your heart, you commit it to memory, and it'll help you grow in your affections for the Lord. So here are the five things. I'm going to give them to you right away. So my note takers, if you want to write these five things down, uh, we can get them written down. But, but it is this. I believe Psalm 117 is Christ-exalting. I believe it is people-unifying. I believe it is soul-comforting. I believe it is mission-enabling, and I believe it is worship-inducing. Now, if you missed any of those, don't worry. I will make sure to say them again as we go through them. But first, Psalm 117 is Christ-exalting. What do I mean when I say that? I love, by the way, that as we are preaching throughout the summer, we have to think about the fact that we have the kids in here with us worshiping because it makes me second-guess the words that I use. But I really wanted to use this word, and I'll make sure to unpack it for this reason, because I think uh, this is a great way of thinking what, what is going on here. For something to be exalted, it is to hold something or someone in high regard or to raise to a high rank of position or of greater power. Now, when I say that this psalm is Christ-exalting, I'm not saying that we are actually taking God and raising him to a higher power as if we have some sort of ability to do that. But what I am saying is that we are taking him in our hearts. We are growing in our affection for him because we have this great need at all times in our lives to raise Christ to a higher position in our hearts. Can say this confidently. There is never a moment in our lives when we don't need more Jesus in our lives. As, as I speak to seasoned saints, I feel like I get this, uh, this, this notion all the time that as you get to know Jesus more and more, you get to know your need for him more and more. Another way I'd like to put this, this idea of exalting Christ, is, is by glorifying him or by using the word magnifying. And I've used this example before, but I, it, it is one of my favorite examples and it's super helpful for me when thinking about this. But um, pastor and author John Piper uses the word magnify. So when we think of exalting Christ, we think of it as magnifying him. But there's two types of magnifying tools out there, two types of ways of magnifying things. There is a microscope which takes tiny things and makes them really large. It gives us an opportunity to see them for what they really are. It exaggerates them. This is now what I'm talking about when I'm talking about magnifying. What I'm talking about magnifying is more like a telescope. It is taking an incredibly large thing and bringing it closer so that we may grow in knowing what that thing is, that it could be even bigger in our hearts. And so when we magnify Christ, when we talk about exalting him, we are talking about him growing deeper, him coming closer and growing deeper in us. So the question then is, how is Psalm 117 Christ-exalting? Right at the beginning of Psalm 117, praise the Lord, extol him. 
praise the Lord. Who is the Lord that we are praising? I love it when Scripture explains Scripture. It is a really neat thing, right? So whenever there's an opportunity to go, oh, this is actually used later on in Scripture, we can then go to that passage and go, how is this then used? And this happens with Psalm 117. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 15. We are going to start in verse 4 and go through verse 11. So Paul, in writing his letter to the church in Rome, and in Romans, by the way, is oftentimes regarded as Paul's gospel. And so this is meant to be um, this, this good news of who Jesus is as Paul is explaining it to the church in Rome. And this is getting towards the end of it. And it says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, here it is, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. This is Paul unpacking this verse and saying, it is Jesus. It is Jesus who we worship. It is Jesus who we extol. It is Jesus. When Psalm 117 calls us to praise the Lord, we are rejoicing in all of who God is, praising the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, exalting the Lord for all that he has done. Verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. It's not some sort of divide. It's not some sort of Old Testament God, New Testament God divide. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. God took on flesh, came to earth in order to fulfill all that was written in the law and prophets, in order to confirm the promises that were given to Israel. It's incredible. And, and what is the result of this confirmation, this confirmation of all that is written in the law and the prophets when they see it all culminate in who Jesus is? It is praise. It is exaltation. The name of Jesus is lifted high. And the question is, who lifts Jesus' name high? It leads us directly into our second point. So Psalm 117 is Christ exalting, and then it is people unifying. Praise the Lord, who all nations, all people. Now, this is not to say that all people or nations will praise the Lord, but rather that the message of the gospel is for all people. God's people were always meant to be a lamp, a beacon to others. 
They were always meant to go to the nations and proclaim the glory of God. They were always meant to go and welcome them in. We see this in promise after promise in the Old Testament. Let's go back to uh, Genesis chapter 12, where God is making this incredible promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And check this out. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We have this unfortunate ability as humans to kind of cling tightly and become insular with our own people. It is, it is an incredible blessing when we find someone that we click with. You might share unity with somebody over a shared hobby, or you might share unity with somebody over some sort of entertainment interest, or maybe you share unity with somebody because it is a coworker, and maybe outside of that job, you probably would have nothing in common, but you work together, so you share unity with that, with that person. Those are great things. It is a blessing to have community. It's even a deeper blessing to have community that is centered on Jesus. But God's people have this unfortunate tendency throughout history to create an us-versus-them mentality. You know, it is, it is true that we, as Christians, we as church, share a special connection. We are God's family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, called to comfort one another, called to encourage one another, called to hold one another accountable. It is a great thing, but it is a thing that is meant to be shared among the nations. And if we have allowed being a part of God's family to create some sort of self-glorifying system, then we have completely missed the mark. We were blessed in order to be a blessing. Abram was blessed to be a blessing. Israel was blessed in order to be a blessing. Paul had to address this in the church. So let me fast forward into uh, the church, um, about 10 years post-resurrection. Um, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia where there is, um, there is arguments that are going on between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And the question is, well, what do the Gentile believers have to do and believe in order to be believers? And Paul actually goes all the way back to the promise that was made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Check this out, Galatians chapter 3. Verses 7 through 9. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced that the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Another Old Testament example that I could think of um, just immediately came to mind uh, is Jonah. Um, so actually, two weeks ago, my family had the opportunity to go to Lake Lundgren for family camp. I got the opportunity to speak at family camp, and it was awesome. And one of the things they did was um, worship um, by the lake. And it was in the evening, and there was worship. And in between each song, we read through all of Jonah. It was really cool. I loved it. Um, and, and 
And this is, so if you don't know, Jonah's the famous prophet, got swallowed by the big fish. Jonah was told by the Lord to go to Nineveh and proclaim his good name to a nation that was wicked. And Jonah refused. It's important to note that he, it's not that he refused because he was scared. It's not that he refused because he was lazy. He refused because he deemed it unfair to go to another people who he saw as too far gone and to preach the goodness of God to them. And it's, Jonah's an incredibly short book and worth your read this week. But I'll spoil the ending. <laughs> Jonah ends up going to Nineveh. He ends up preaching to Nineveh about, their, Nineveh about their imminent destruction if they didn't turn to the Lord. And this is what happens. Jonah chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And if there is anyone you are holding back the gospel from because you somehow believe you are in a morally superior seat, you need to get rid of that. You need to get rid of that. I would challenge you to allow the call of Psalm 117 to echo through your heart. Praise the Lord, all nations. Psalm 117 is people unifying. And I want to make sure to state this. It is unifying around the gospel. It is unifying around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is the greatest thing we could unify around. So Psalm 117 is Christ-exalting. Psalm 117 is people unifying. And Psalm 117 is soul-comforting. Why are all the nations praising the Lord? Because his faithfulness endures forever. Because great is his steadfast love towards us. I'm going to work backwards through these two lines, by the way. So we'll start with his faithfulness and we'll work up towards his love towards us. When we say that God is faithful, what do we mean? We mean to say that God is true to who he says he is and what he says he will do. Another way that we could frame this is to say that he is unshakable. He is unshakable. And I love, by the way, that our worship team picked out um, that he, he does not change, right? But yet he changes everything. There is an incredible truth to the fact that God does not change. He is unshakable. He is unshakable. That means that when he makes a promise, he fulfills that promise. He is faithful. When he told Abraham that he would make him a father of many nations, he did not go back on it when Abraham failed. When he promised David that the Messiah would come through his heritage, through his line, he did not go back on it when David failed. God is not faithful to, God is not faithful to 99% of his word. He is faithful to 100% of who he is and what he says he will do. He is unshakable. 
and this faithfulness endures forever. So when we read something like Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we can know that he is faithful to it, right? Romans 5, 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? He is faithful. He is faithful to his promises. He is unshakable. There's nothing more soul comforting than that truth. And there are a lot of things in this world that promise soul comfort, right? The first thing that comes to mind when I hear the word soul and comfort is like soul food, right? Like we think of like food as comfortable, but we all know that if we indulge in too much food, it results in physical pain. Maybe not even that. Sometimes food provides a very temporary comfort, but it is temporary. Or what about one that is a little bit more prevalent, especially in our community, in our state? What about the lies that are promised with the comfort of alcohol? It doesn't take long to see that any sort of temporary comfort that it gives pales in comparison to what it destroys and steals. What about gossip and slander and hateful speech? They can all provide an individual with this comforting feeling of superiority in the moment, but that all comes crashing down as the people that are burned around you turn from you. Any sort of comfort this world promises is temporary, is fleeting, and when we stake our lives on it, it is soul-crushing. Jesus is the one who is faithful. He is the one who is unshakable in what he says and what he does. You and me, his creation, made in his image, rebelled from him, and yet while we were enemies of God, while we were enemies, he decided that he would pay the price demanded for our rebellion, reconciling us, bringing us back into right terms with him. He is faithful. Can I get an amen? We can trust him when he says that he is near to the brokenhearted. We can trust him when he says that when we search for him, we will find him. We can trust him when he says he is faithful to forgive. We can trust him when he says he is faithful to finish the good work that he has begun in you. He is faithful, and his faithfulness endures forever. But verse 2 doesn't just talk about God's faithfulness. It also says, great is his steadfast love towards us. This is kind of the how to his faithfulness. We know that he is faithful. We hear that. We see that. Go, okay, Christoph, I hear that he is faithful. I understand that. Which it means that he is true to who he is and true to what he does. But in his character, how he plays this out is through his steadfast love towards us. It is one thing to be faithful in what you say, but to do it out of a sense of duty. Any parent who has had to ask a child to do chores can attest to this. <laughs> a little delayed, but like, all right, yeah. God does not fulfill his faithfulness out of duty, but out of love. And it's easy sometimes for us to feel like God is faithful to forgive out of obligation, but because he has to. As if he would somehow take it back if he could, you know, he kind of regrets it, but okay, fine. That's not true. God 
is faithful to forgive because of his steadfast love. And his steadfast love towards who? His steadfast love towards us. Now, as I've been reading and praying through this psalm, the paradigm of God being faithful, that faithfulness manifesting through his steadfast love, it, it, is, it has really gotten me to like think, man, that is incredible. But what really tied the bow on top of that was, was one word. One word. And it's really easy to gloss over this word. So the word great, it's kind of wedged in there. You can see that in verse 2, right? It says great is his steadfast love towards us. We use the word great to describe something qualitatively, as if something is good, great, better, best. We, we think of things on like a scale of, of quality. And that's not what's happening here. The psalmist is not describing God's love as some sort of quality, as some sort of adjective. It's better to think of great here as a verb. You see, the word that's being used here, so we know the Old Testament, almost all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, right? And this word that's written here is actually translated in other places of the Bible as prevailing. Prevailing. It's this verb. God's love is prevailing. His steadfast love towards us is not great in the sense that it's on this scale, but it's great in the sense that it is a prevailing love. It's ongoing. It's interactive. It's going on right now. Every single breath you take is a confirmation of God's prevailing steadfast love towards you. This word is used in other places in Scripture, and this is how we know that it's, it's used in different ways. So Exodus chapter 17, verse 11, is talking about um, the Israelites fighting with the, Am the Amalekites. Um, and, and it shows that when Moses held up his hand, we have that verse? Thank you. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. That's the same word that's used in Psalm 117. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed the same word. God's love prevails. It has this meaning of conquering over something. It has this meaning of defeating something. God's love has conquered death. It has paid the price of sin. It is prevailing. What could be more soul-comforting than that? That one, God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to who he is and what he will do. And two, that he accomplishes it through his steadfast love towards us. Psalm 117 is Christ-exalting, people-unifying, soul-comforting, and mission-enabling. So if you've noticed a pattern here, we kind of climbed our way down through the two verses, and now we're going to climb our way back up through these two verses, kind of like a mountain. So here's the thing. When we recognize God's faithfulness, when we recognize his steadfast love towards us, we can confidently call all nations, all people to praise the Lord. Now, there's that famous quote from Charles Spurgeon when it comes to Christians saying that you are either a missionary or an imposter, which is to say this, if you know that faithfulness, if you know that steadfast love, you are called to be a light in a world of darkness. When the writer of Psalm 117 puts all nations in verse 1, it was a call for God's people to look outside of themselves and to tell others this great news of who God is. 
You know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have grown up in a time where all information was not readily available at my fingertips. Now, granted, I am a millennial. Make your judgments as you will. Um, <laughs> so the, the internet was definitely a thing when I was young, but social media wasn't really a thing, and news and information uh, wasn't something that was just readily available for everyone. And I loved being able to go to school and find out information and go and tell people. It was, just, it was a joy of mine to find out this piece of information that I knew somebody would love, and I would go and I would tell it to them because there was just such a joy in that. And that is what we are called to do. Matthew 13.44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You see, if you have experienced the soul-comforting joy of the gospel, then you know what it is a treasure you have found. You are called to go and be a light to the nations. And this happens in a few different ways. Like One, it happens in just explicitly telling people the gospel, but it also happens in how you carry yourself. It happens in, in how people see that transformation in you. So I had a, uh, had a really cool experience this week um, as a dad. So I'm going to have a dad bragging moment, um, if you will allow me that. My daughter, Maggie, who is seven, scored her first soccer goal this past week. Yes! <laughs> um, um, I made sure to ask her if I could tell this story beforehand. So we're good. Um, all season long, right? The whole season, all season long, I would look her in the eyes before every single game, and I was like, this, this, this is the game. This is, I can feel it. This is the game. All year long. Finally, we get to the last game of the season, which was this past Tuesday. Um, and it happened. In the fourth quarter, with five minutes left to go, she scored a goal. And everyone went crazy, and it was awesome. I loved it. You know what was more awesome, though, for me as a dad that evening? What was, what was really neat for me is I got the opportunity to sit on the sidelines because one of the coaches couldn't be there. They needed to have two coaches, and so I offered to um, just help and sit, and I would do, like, the substitutions. And I, so I saw when the kids came off the field, on and off the field, and at halftime, all the kids come, you know, come running back to the sidelines, and they're getting their water, and... What made me more proud than the goal, which was awesome, was Maggie comes off the field and she is just encouraging all of her teammates. She's giving high fives. She's telling them how awesome they're doing. She's doing great. And, and her coach looks at her and goes, Maggie, I love you. I'm so glad. You are such an encourager to your team. You are such an encourager. Thank you for being such an encourager. And then just goes off. And it immediately made me think of, in Scripture, Ephesians 4, 29, which says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only, only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And I thought, what a testament. What a testament she was able to be in that moment of just encouraging her teammates. She built up a reputation based upon just being an encourager, which was awesome. You know, if the world you are surrounded in, if the people you are surrounded with don't know Jesus, then the way in which you live should point towards Jesus. They should, be, they should wonder, what is it about them that makes them so encouraging? What is it about them that makes them joyful? This is what I mean when I say that, mission, that Psalm 117 is mission-enabling. Mission 
Now, that's not to say that if you have an opportunity to do missions across seas and to go and tell people about Jesus, you shouldn't do it. I think that is an incredible and awesome thing to do. But what I do believe is that we have an incredible mission field here in Northeast Wisconsin in the UP. We have a lot of people that need to know Jesus. We need to be the light that, see, that, that helps them to see Jesus. If we believe that God is faithful, then what we believe is that our only hope in this life and in death is Jesus. That is our only hope. And if there are those around you who don't have that hope, they need to know that hope. That's what this psalm is calling God's people to do. Let your praise be in such a way that all of the nations hear it. All of the people hear it. So Psalm 117 is Christ-exalting, people-unifying, soul-comforting, mission-enabling, and lastly, Psalm 117 is worship-inducing. And I worry sometimes, so as we make our way all the way back up to praise the Lord, when we think about worship, I worry sometimes that we have too narrow of a view of worship. I think that we sometimes distill worship down to a genre of music, or we think of worship as just that little period of time when we sing songs prior to the Lord's Supper and prior to uh, the message on a Sunday morning. But the truth is, is that when we talk about worship, we are talking about a complete posture of our hearts. Psalm 117 ends with, praise the Lord. It isn't just a a command to praise the Lord in song, but rather to worship him in all that we say, think, and do. Worship literally boils down to that which you find worth in. It is a value statement. Worship is the outward expression of what our hearts find value in. This is why Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You'll notice that when we talk about all that we do on a Sunday morning, we frame it in the category of worship. So on a Sunday morning, it is not just worship when we sing. It is worship when we take the Lord's Supper together. You might notice that we say we're going to continue worship with the Lord's Supper. Right now, we are continuing worship through the hearing of God's Word. It's part of the reason on the pieces of paper you receive when you walk in, we don't call them bulletins. They're called worship guides. And if you've never noticed that before, maybe you'll notice that now, is that it says worship guide on there. It's to help us think through the fact that what we are doing on a Sunday morning is worship. It is the gathering of God's people. What we do together is not just programming, right? What is going on right now is literally God's people collectively gathering together and proclaiming that he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our time. He is worthy of our gathering together as a family. This is why Psalm 117 should be worship-inducing because when we reflect on his prevailing steadfast love towards us, when it points us towards his faithfulness throughout the entire course of history, 
how could our response be anything other than praise the Lord? How could our response be anything else? How could we turn towards anything else? What else could be worthy of our time? What else could be worthy of our resources? What else could be worthy of our families? What else could be worthy of our talents? Then he who laid down his life for us so that we may be forgiven of our sins and that he may begin this renewal process of us, that he would redeem us and draw him closer to him. So that we may say, along with the psalmist in Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Great is his steadfast love towards us. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. I want to challenge you this week, church. My challenge is this. Memorize Psalm 117. Take time to commit it towards your heart. It's not a lot. Memorize it. Write it to your heart. Ask yourself the question, how has God been faithful in my life? How have I seen God be faithful? How have I seen and experienced his steadfast love? This is, this is one to commit to heart. This is one to remind yourself so that when you are on the mountaintop, you are praising the Lord. But then when you are also going through valleys of life, you can remember that God is good. He is faithful. He will see you through this. Let's, let's praise him together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your steadfast love. Lord, I pray that you would bring to our hearts memories of the ways you have been faithful to us, ways that you have shown your love to us. Father, I pray for anyone in here this morning who, who would not call themselves a Christian. God, I pray that they would observe and see your faithfulness. God, I pray that they would feel the weight of the brokenness of this world. I feel that they would feel the weight of their sin, but I pray that they would know that you are faithful to forgive, that, that you are faithful when you say that you would take their burden, their yoke, that you are faithful to that. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who spread this good news in our homes, that you would help us to spread this good news in our workplaces, in our schools, at, at sports games, at uh, wherever it is we are, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be um, just a reflection of the light that we have seen. God, help us to spread the good news that the Lord is faithful to all the nations. You are good. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.